0: Hello and welcome to the Dark Things Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 7. And today we're covering the Veliska, yeah. Ooh, okay. <laughs> so we're to- covering the Villisca axe murderers. Uh, that being said, can you imagine living in a town that is most famous for an unsolved crime? For the people of Villisca, Iowa, with a population of only one thousand two hundred people, the crime we are discussing today put their small town on the map and made it world famous.
1: Yeah. So, just starting off, like, have you ever driven through Iowa? Nah. There isn't shit. Really? <laughs> like, there's literally nothing. It's just rolling cornfields. Huh. Um, but yeah, so Villisca, Iowa, it's just a really tiny, small town, but it has one of like the most gruesome crimes of the 19th century there. So we'll go ahead and dive into it. So this starts with the Moore family. Uh, back in 1912, the Moore family. So the Moore family consisted of parents Josiah, he was age 43, Sarah Montgomery, age 39 and their four children, Herman Montgomery, 11 years old, Mary Catherine, aged 10, Arthur, age 7, and Paul Vernon, aged 5. Uh, they were considered an affluent family in the community. They were pretty well-liked in their community also. On June 9, 1912, Mary Catherine Moore invited Ina May, who was 8 years old, and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, who was 12, to spend the night at the Moore residence. That evening, the girls and the Moore family attended their Presbyterian church, where they participated in the Children's Day program. After the program ended at 9.30 p.m., the Moores and Stillinger sisters walked to the Moores' house, arriving sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. At 7 a.m. the next day, June 10th, Mary Peckham, the Moores' neighbor, became concerned after she noticed that the family had not come out to do their morning chores. Peckham knocked on the Moores' door. Nobody answered. She tried to open the door, discovered that it was locked. Peckham left the Moore's chickens out and called for Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. Like Peckham, Moore received no response when he knocked on the door and shouted. Ross unlocked the front door with his copy of the house key, while Peckham stood on the porch. Ross went into the parlor and opened the guest bedroom door, where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed. Moore immediately told Peckham to call Henry Horton, who was Villisca's primary peace officer, which I assume that means police officer, yeah. um, who arrived shortly thereafter. Horton's search of the house revealed that the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls had been bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon? An axe belonging to Josiah was found in the guest room where the Stillinger sisters were found. So, what are your thoughts on that so far?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, good on the neighbors for noticing they weren't out for the chores, obviously, but...
1: I don't know it's just such a tight-knit community you know like right now there's only 1200 people that live in Vallisca and around 1912 there was just I think there was just shy of a thousand yeah so I mean this community is already pretty small right um something like this obviously a murder of how many people five six people would be just completely insane an yeah. axe murder too well and who
0: is this josiah again so i mean we're not saying this is like the murderer but like
1: who josiah is the father he's the head of the house okay so they've got and he his was axe yeah 43 years old and his wife is sarah and they had their kids okay and the kids like one thing that's pretty disturbing is the kids are all so young i mean you have age 11 10 7 and 5 years old yeah. and then the girls that came over to visit were aged 8 and 12 who spent the night So, literally, this is like, so, it's crazy because they were all so young. Yeah. Like, it's disturbing that there was a murder of all these young kids. So, um... Want me to hop in for the next part? Yeah, go ahead.
0: Okay, so, the doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Two cigarettes in the attic suggested that the killer, or killers, patiently waited in the attic until the Moore family and the Stillinger guests were asleep. The killers began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah Moore were sleeping. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victim. His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing. They used the blade of the axe on Josiah while using the blunt end on the rest of the victims. They proceeded on to the children's rooms and bludgeoned Herman, Mary, Catherine, Arthur, and Paul in the head in the same manner as their parents. They returned to the master bedroom to inflict more blows on the elder Moors knocking over a shoe that had filled with blood, before moving downstairs to the guest bedroom and killing Ina and Lena. Investigators believe that all of the victims, except for Lena Stillinger, had been asleep when murdered. They thought that she was awake and tried to fight back, as she was found lying crosswise on the bed, and with a defense wound on her arm. Lena's nightgown was pushed up to her waist and she was wearing no undergarments, leading to law enforcement speculating that the killers sexually molested her or attempted to do so. Dude... Fuck the story all right. And
1: how old is that girl? Um, Who was that? That was Lena? Yeah. We what said it earlier. That? I think she was, what, 12? Let me go back and find it real quick. Yeah, I just, like, I want to point out something that, that kind of caught my attention, and that's that the blade of the axe was used on Josiah, but the blunt end was used on everybody else. Yeah. So why do you think that is?
0: I mean, my first initial thought is, like, maybe the father was the only, like, potential threat yeah so maybe that's what they were going okay. for there
1: yeah because literally it's it's him in a house full of a bunch of little girls
0: yeah but still like it kind of concerns me though because I don't know we know with like psychopaths and sociopaths oftentimes their victims are female and usually often it like correlates between having a bad upbringing with their mother or sisters or like lack of attention from females or being made fun of by them yeah so do you think maybe there was some aspect of that kind of showing and using the blunt force of that?
1: Um, I think that absolutely could be a possibility. However, since we know nothing about who committed this crime, um, I think it's hard to tell. My theory on it, though, is that Josiah, you know, I think maybe since he was the first one to get killed, they started axing him, and they realized, like, oh, my God, this is a lot of gore, you know? Yeah. Like, when you when you ax someone, I mean, that's a sharp end going into somebody. There's obviously going to be a lot of blood splatter, Whereas if you use a blunt-ended object, you're just mashing, you know? True. I think there would be a lot less... I mean, I'm not going to say there's a lot less blood because there'd be the same amount, but there wouldn't. it wouldn't be as gory, I think. Okay. So...
0: I have an interesting, like, add-on to that. So what if... Because I agree with, like, the less gore. I'm wondering also if, like, they liked killing so much that they wanted to prolong the deaths of the people after the husband. Do you think that could have been maybe been an aspect of that?
1: Probably, yeah, I think so, especially if there was some sort of, like, a sexual assault, like a rape, Yeah. that could have taken place. I mean, you. I don't know who this sicko was, but, you know, it, it'd be disgusting to think of him raping, like, a body that had just been hacked to pieces.
0: Straight up. Okay, that's the question I had, too. So, by the way, Lena is 12, the one that he supposedly molested. Mm-hmm. With that being said, was that before or after he killed
1: her? Because um, she had I defense... I don't think they know. He, they, she had a defensive mark on her arm. Yeah. Uh, but I think he might have. You know, because if you're bludgeoning someone, I don't think you're gonna kill him on one hit. I mean, if it's a if it's a twelve year old girl or an eight year old girl, one blunt of one hit of an axe would probably do it. Yeah. But maybe he didn't. Maybe he tried to molest her before he actually killed her. Oof. Like, he woke her up, tried to do that, and then she got defensive, and then he took the axe and started going at it. Jesus. Because, you know, if you're Ugh. in bed asleep and someone just just wallops you with an axe across the face, you're not going to feel it, you know? Yeah. You're just going to be gone.
0: Well, the one thing that kind of, like, freaks me out the most on this is with him smoking cigarettes in the attic, because I feel like that would be, like, a really good indicator someone's in your house, right? Because there's no yeah. way they didn't smell
1: that smoke. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But another thing is... Um, and this this kind of reminds me of the Hinterkaifekt murders. Yeah, definitely. Remember how the guy was hiding in the house? I mean, he was in that house for, for all we know, weeks.
0: Dude, that was a creep. Yeah, for yeah, sure.
1: Hinterkaifekt, go give it a listen. I think it was uh, in season one.
0: I'm going to pull it up real quick. If but, you want to keep correlating to Yeah, that.
1: sure. So it's interesting because Hinterkaifekt was somewhat of a, they used a blunt object as well to kill. And... It's crazy because this also happened in the same time period also, like the 1912s, right? Kaifek took place right after World War I, the murders in Germany. Um, basically, that story summed up was a man was in the attic of a farmhouse, kind of like this. They don't know for how long. It could have been weeks. Um, but this Veliska axe murderer, we'll get into tying it to a couple other murders around the country. But we'll go ahead right now and go into the investigation a little bit of what happened. As well as talk about some of the suspects that were involved and this is the part that gets pretty um intriguing with who the suspects were.
0: So Oh real quick were... by the way, do you want me to go over this? Yeah. So what we were talking about with Kaifak murders, that's season one, episode six. Definitely go give that a listen, because that one I mean, that one's creepy as fuck, right? Cause I mean compared to this one, like there were people that were ripping out their hair because they weren't even dead yet. Like yes, he I did such that. a poor job that like he didn't even finish them off and they were ripping out their hair because they were in such pain.
1: Yes, and the like, incest. We can't oh forget God, about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Fucking, yeah. Everyone got a piece of that. <laughs> yeah.
1: The neighbor, the dad, the priest, the pastor, all, everybody was getting a piece of her. It was a crazy episode. Yeah, so give that a <laughs> listen for sure. Um,
0: did you have any help? No, that was it,
1: yeah. So going into the investigation and a list of the suspects, there was a lot of possible suspects that emerged during this case. Uh, including even the reverend of the Presbyterian Church that they went to. Mm. Um, There's a couple, uh, Frank F. Jones, William Mansfield, we'll talk about all them. Uh, But the first ended with a hung jury, while the second trial ended with an acquittal. So they've never found out who has actually been guilty and charged of this. We'll go through this list of suspects and we'll let the Listeners kind of get their own idea when we present the evidence. Uh, to this date, the murders remain an unsolved mystery. But this, this story was actually uh, put on Unsolved Mysteries, the show on, um, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon right now. But it's also on Unsolved Mysteries. That's where I first started learning about it, at least. Okay. So, um, before we dive into the suspects, it's important to note that every single transient, like a uh, homeless wanderer person, was considered... A suspect. Any person that was a stranger in the town at that time was automatically considered a suspect. So uh, Andrew Sawyer turned out to be, uh, he was an unlucky transient traveling through Vallisca at the time of the murders. Um, and he was actually scheduled to be put on trial. He was arrested, uh, with no evidence, but solely based on the fact that he was a transient in the city at the time. Okay. Not even a city. Like, this is like a village, basically. Yeah. Um, And so he was eventually acquitted after proving that he had left at 11 p.m. that night on a train to Osceola, Iowa, Uh, and he provided a train stub with that. So he wasn't even in town. He left at 11 p.m., so he was eventually acquitted. So I think we can pretty much rule out this guy because he was on the train at that time.
0: All right, dude, imagine if this was like the Salem witch trial time period, though. Like, we just got done with that episode. Like, this guy probably would have been put to death already,
1: you know? Oh, for sure. They probably would have closed the case right then and just put him to death. Yeah. And any other transient.
0: That's crazy. Do you want me to go into Reverend George? Okay. So, Reverend George Kelly was a traveling minister in the town on the night of the murders. Kelly was described as a peculiar as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of peeping and several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. Nice, great qualities in a man. On June 8th, 1912, he came to Willisca to teach at the Children's Day Services with the Moore family attending on June 9th, 1912. Okay, I'm curious. I want to kind of stop here because if he was known for that, why would he be ch- teaching at Children's Day Services? Like if people knew about this.
1: um, I don't know if they actually knew about this at the time. I think this might have come out after the investigation. Okay, okay. But the fact that he's a reverend... And he's trying to like young get young women and girls to pose nude for him. That's that's messed up.
0: Yeah. But I mean church is the perfect place to be to get that. Oh yeah, done, so. everybody
1: trusts each other. It's yeah. You know, that's where most of these perverts come from is church. So. Exactly. <laughs> okay,
0: continue on. He left the town between five AM and five thirty AM on june tenth, nineteen twelve, hours before the bodies were discovered. Reverend Kelly had confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe his confession.
1: Okay, right there. What? Like <laughs> Dude, I don't know. I think it's probably because, like, he's a reverend. Yeah. And he's, like, an upstanding, you know, air quotes, upstanding citizen. Yeah. Where he just straight up, like, it reminds me of, uh, have you seen Les Mis? Yeah. You know how John Valjean goes to the police station, and he's the mayor of the town? Yeah. And he's like, I'm the one you're looking for? Right. Like, you have this innocent man on, on death row, but it's me you're looking for. And they all start laughing. Yeah. They're like, oh, the mayor's gone crazy. <laughs> like... That's what I picture happening here.
0: Fuck. I'm wondering, okay, could this have any parallels to other people that were being tried? That maybe he was trying to do this to save someone, kind of like this late Miz scenario? Or do we know if, if he was tried later than the other?
1: Um, I don't. We can keep going into it, but as far as the Reverend is concerned, there are a lot of convincing like you can't just blame somebody just because they have a they have a creepy quality of peeping on young girls. You can't blame them for an axe murder. True. Um, So let's keep going with the evidence.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, In the weeks that followed, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and the family of the deceased. This aroused suspicion, and a private investigator wrote back to Reverend Kelly, asking for details that the minister might know about the murders. Kelly replied with great detail, claiming to have heard sounds and possibly witnessed the murders. His known mental illness made authorities question whether he knew the details because of having committed the murders or was imagining his account. Dude, that's interesting. All right, like, I'll finish this out all the way, but I do want to talk on that. So in 1914, two years after the murders, Kelly was arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was sexually harassing a woman who applied for a job as his secretary. He was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the National Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. Investigators speculated again that Kelly could be the murderer of the Moore family. In 1917, Kelly was arrested for the Villisca murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, it followed many hours of interrogation, and Kelly later recanted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. So, first thing I kind of want to ask you about is, like, um, of having this deep fascination with it, and, like, actively writing letters to the family, like, really talking about it, getting it out in the open. Like, we know with other serial killers, like, that's kind of a thing, where they love the attention oh
1: for sure zodiac killer btk all of them yeah so what do you think on that um it's hard to say you know like as a reverend he might have been trying to console these people i mean he might have just been a perverted guy you know like harassing somebody i think it's it's not funny harassment's not funny obviously i just think of it as funny being in the 1914 like (laughs) this guy's harassing a chick with snail mail it's just kind of (laughs) funny you know (laughs) Like, He's nowadays, like, yeah. nowadays it's like someone sends a dick pic to someone. Yeah. That's sexual harassment or texting or <laughs> calling. But, like, 1914's social media was, you know, Dude, snail mail.
0: This is literally the equivalent of sliding into a girl's DMs.
1: Yeah, in the 1914's, like, <laughs> she's like I'm going to hey, send her a drawing of my dick. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let me blow her back out.
1: And three weeks later, she's going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't be laughing at it, but it's kind of funny, just, like, the whole thought of, like, oh, he was... Harassing someone through the mail. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay.
0: Dude, like, girls probably are shaking their heads right now because they have to deal with this on a daily basis, yeah. you know?
1: <laughs> but at least with this chick, like, she wouldn't, she would get something and then, you know, she wouldn't have to worry about it for another couple weeks. Yeah. Because it's up. in through the mail service in the 1914s, 1914. 1914. Um, so, yeah. And we can come back to the Reverend as well. I just, I don't think there's enough evidence for him to be guilty. You know what I mean? Yeah like him having a fascination with it and trying to write letters to the family and everything. I don't know. And like we said, he did a, he did feel guilty and say he did commit the crimes, but that alone, especially after hours and hours of police interrogation, you're going to confess to anything.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. It's been
1: proven. Um, and like I said earlier in the, in the show, um, My major is in criminal justice, and that's one of the main hot points of the CJ system today is where do we stop with criminal investigations? Do we let these people go out? Do we let these people uh, have a drink break, a bathroom break, or do we keep on pushing them for a confession? Yeah, Because there are a lot of people out there who have falsely um, confessed to a crime, which they never did. But the whole psychological thing behind it is if you deprive someone of using the bathroom or getting food or water, they will say anything to get out of that room. They yeah, will. Yeah. So it's a like I said, it's a hot point. So and in 1914, police didn't know that. Uh, we're just yeah. barely starting to realize those, that that thing today. So, um, do you have any other thoughts on the Reverend? I mean.
0: As of now, I think he's probably the most likely candidate, Yeah. but obviously we need to go through the rest of them. So Yes. Okay, you
1: know. so we'll continue. I will, I'll talk about William Mansfield. He's our next suspect. So it's believed that Mansfield was a serial killer because he murdered his wife, <laughs> infant, indicator. child, and parents-in-law with an axe two years before the Velisca crimes. Huh. <laughs> so he's already got that under his belt. Good start. Yeah. Um, he's believed to have committed the axe murders in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca crimes. He was also suspected in the double homicide of Jenny Peterson, Jenny Miller in Illinois. Each crime site was accessible by train, and all murders were carried out virtually in the same manner. And we're going to talk about the manner of the murders and the things that happened after the murders, which really, like, raised some crazy red flags. Yeah. So Mansfield was released after a grand jury in Montgomery County refused to indict him on grounds that his alibi checked out. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas, and Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person. Other murders reported as possibly being linked to these crimes include numerous unsolved axe murders along the Southern Pacific Railroad from 1911 to 1912. The unsolved Axemen of New Orleans killings, which that is gonna be an episode we'll do for sure. That's yeah. crazy. You've heard about that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Let's stuff into it. Um, as well as several other murders during this time period. The murders in Colorado Springs were closely related in execution to those in the Moore House nine months before the Vallisca murders. H. C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A. J. Burnham were found dead in Colorado Springs, murdered with an axe the Colorado Springs police department found it difficult to believe that the same person could perpetrate a similar crime in a city as in the Velisca murders. So bed sheets were used to cover the windows to prevent passerbys from looking in. Um, at the Moore house, the murderer hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty big parallel. Yeah. Um, as in the murders in the Velisca, the murderer in Colorado Springs wiped the blood of his ax and covered the heads of the victims with bedclothes.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: So he's covering their faces. That's another parallel. Yeah. It's suggested that it's suggested that Mansfield was a cocaine addicted serial killer. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine? Like some crazy son of a bitch breaking your door down and being on cocaine? Yeah. Like that's insane. That's Dude, scary, and no, terrifying. Dead um according according to another investigation, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner including that the same man probably committed them. In each murder, the victims were hacked hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the home were covered. So that's also very strange. Because in the 1900s, there was a huge spiritual phenomenon going throughout the United States. Um, And what a lot of people don't know is after someone died in your house or when you were having a funeral, people would cover all the mirrors in their home with black cloth. Because they saw mirrors as a gateway to the afterlife and, like, the paranormal world. Okay. So, in the 1800s, 1900s, like I said, this huge... I mean, this is the time when the Ouija board came about and seances and stuff like that. There was a huge, like, revival of people's interest in the paranormal. So, covering windows and covering anything that has a reflection is something that could be pretty common with murdering people because you didn't want them to be like looking back at you in the window yeah, or in the mirror so I thought that's pretty interesting because if you were to go back in time and go to a funeral a lot of the times they do the viewing at the person's house so like your grandma died um, the coroner would take the body then the body would come to your house prepared and then all your friends and neighbors could walk through your house while your dead grandma's in your living room Oof. and all the windows and mirrors would be covered with black cloth That's kind of creepy to
0: think about, Mm -hmm. not going to lie.
1: Yeah, so that was actually a pretty common practice. Um, Another thing that's uh, notable and a parallel with the Colorado Springs murders is that in each murder, uh, a burning lamp was left at the foot of the bed and also a basin in which the murderer washed himself in or herself and it was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves. The, um, Wilkerson, who was one of the detectives, believed, um, there was strong evidence that the man, Mansfield, who knew fingerprints were on file at the federal military prison at Leavenworth. And, you know, 1910 through 1920, this was when, um, fingerprinting was in its infancy. Yeah. So not a lot of people even had knowledge of it back then. But Mansfield would have known about the whole fingerprinting thing because they took him at Leavenworth, the military prison. Okay. Uh, in 1916, Mansfield mansfield was arrested and brought to montgomery county payroll records however provided an alibi for him that placed mansfield in illinois at the time of the villisca murders he was released for a lack of evidence and then later won a lawsuit he brought against uh detective wilkerson and was awarded two thousand two hundred and twenty five dollars jesus so this guy could be guilty of sin and he just won a lawsuit and is off (laughs) scot-free and this guy's already murdered people yeah, fuck this. This dude, dude has literally murdered his own infant kid with an axe. He shouldn't be out. Like, no, he should not be out of prison. Uh-uh. Um so uh however, let's see. Okay. However, R.H. Thorpe was a restaurant owner from Shenandoah, Iowa. He identified Mansfield as a man he saw the morning after the Vallisca murders boarding a train at Clarinida, and this man said he had walked from Vallisca. If proven to be true, this testimony would disprove Mansfield's alibi. So this guy's now saying... I mean, and that's the other thing with payroll. Like, okay, you did a payroll for Illinois. He picked it up a week later. That doesn't give you a decent alibi. No, it doesn't. He could have been in Iowa. It's not that far away. No, yeah. Easily a day train trip can get you there. A day or two. Yeah. So the payroll doesn't mean squat. Um, It kind of pisses me off that he won that lawsuit. It just shows the the corruption of the of the criminal justice system in this country. Oh, yeah. And nothing's really changed, to be honest with
0: you. No, like that's the one thing that I always get in conversations about with people is it's like we've made a lot of progress socially, but as far as like laws go, I don't think it's like really progressed at all. It hasn't. You it know? really
1: hasn't. It's one of the worst... It's something that's so overlooked by politicians, they don't really care about the CJ system because it doesn't affect them necessarily. Well,
0: also on top of that, and I don't want to knock too many political parties here, but the parties that back the Constitution have caused a lot of issues because, like, that stuff was made for the 1800s. That is not relevant today. And, like, I know a lot of people think that's ordained by God, and if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. But, like, those laws do not apply to a lot of people nowadays, you know?
1: Yes, I agree. And I think they're definitely, like, being a student of criminal justice, that's one of the areas of our, of our country that definitely needs to be looked at, especially, you know, we're talking about, um, we're in 2020 right now. We just have this huge Black Lives Matter movement going on. Yeah. And that is also um, a bad fruit of the criminal justice system, really. Yeah. yeah, it really is. So they're really neat, and I'm glad there's people looking at the criminal justice system and trying to reform it, I, I won't get too political on it, but because uh, this is, you know, we're talking about axe murders right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just happy that it's being looked at.
0: Yeah, me too, definitely. And
1: hopefully, changes soon.
0: Okay, so our last suspect is Paul Mueller. We're gonna go into this real quick. Um, this comes from the book *The Man from the Train*, which was written in 2017 by Bill James, or sorry, Bill James, and his daughter Rachel McCarthy James. Uh, discuss the Villisca murders as part of the much larger series of murders which they believe were all committed by a single serial killer. They conclude that the murderer was Paul Mueller, an immigrant from Germany who was subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in 1987, a murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. James started uh, his research in an attempt to solve the Villisca, Villisca murders and with his daughter, found archival newspaper stories detailing dozens of families murdered under similar circumstances across the U.S. The Jameses thus believe that the Mueller was guilty. That Mueller was guilty of the Vliska murders as part of a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents, including the Colorado Springs and pa- Paola, Paola, uh, Paola, Paola crimes. The Jameses identify common futures futures to these crimes many of which are also found at the Vallisca scene. The killer selected families who lived near railroad tracks, seemingly struck in ambush at about midnight while the victims were asleep. Used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and the face. Used an axe at the victims' home and left in plain sight after the murders. Covered the victims and, and sorry, covered the victims with blankets to prevent blood splatter. Covered windows from inside the houses as well as mirrors, unlock the doors before departure. In Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed towards a pubescent girl. Dude, that pisses me off.
1: Okay, but that—that's a lot of lo- that's really logical the yeah. way that these people are putting at it. Putting it it. Is. Um the people who wrote this, Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. I think Bill James is like a professional private investigator. Oh, okay. So he's really knowledgeable on the on the fact. And the man from the train, that book you were talking about, he set off to solve the crime. So basically he's saying Paul Mueller is guilty for like, and if this is true, he's one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. Oh, for sure. If he's killed 59 people, he is the top serial killer in the U.S. If this is true. Obviously we can't prove it. There's no evidence behind it. Um,
0: I mean, I do want... Okay, so that last part, though, I think it makes it pretty clear that he is a good candidate for this. Because, I mean, with this one, at least, with the Velisca axe murders, there was a molestation with the younger daughter. And with this, you know, the suspected crimes were often involved with a sexual motive towards a pubescent girl. Like, that alone, along with the covering of the, you know, um, mirrors and the windows, like, and using the axe, I'm like, those three things all happened, you know?
1: They did. Yep. So... And it was... And the other thing about this, too, I'm not even talking about Paul Mueller at this time. Um, It's crazy to think that there was, in the 1911 through 1914, a crazy person on the loose that's probably guilty for all these murders. Yeah. That we have no idea who they are.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, the fact that it was an axe, the fact that they had a lamp at the end of the bed and a wash bin, and they covered the mirrors and covered the windows, that's something that is... A very interesting, unique trait that I think can be tied to one single killer. Yeah, definitely. So, I don't know. That's that's crazy to me to just try to think about. Like, there could have been a, the, America's most prolific serial killer. We could not even know their name.
0: Dude, I know. And that's crazy to think about.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. Yeah, 59 people murdered. I think the highest body count uh, was 50. Jesus. Ever, okay. Ever been convicted?
0: The only thing that like makes me think about this is like taking it to our time period. All right. So like, if we move this whole scenario, put it in the 2020, you know, just 2000 era. Um, do you think he would have gotten caught with the technology and the amount of knowledge we have about this kind of stuff? I would say yes.
1: Um, just because you know, security cameras, cell phones, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that he definitely would have been caught. You know, you can't even go to a train station anywhere in this country and knock get your face caught on camera. That's true. Yeah. So, I think, and, you know, in the 19, 1910, you're not going to have any technology, especially in the middle of Iowa. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere, a town of a thousand people. You're not going to solve this crime. No, definitely not. So, and, you know, that's another thing why this person probably didn't get caught is because he was literally hacking up families... That lived in the absolute middle of nowhere, right off railroad tracks, so he could roll into a town, kill a family, rape a girl, leave the very next morning. Yeah. So that's why I think they they took all the transients into account.
0: That's a good point. It's a really good point. I don't know, like this story is really unsettling. I mean it's like we were talking about the Hinter Kaifek murders, which in my opinion I think was a little bit more gruesome, even though that was only one family like straight up where with this i mean we're talking 60 people you know yeah a
1: chain of murders that left 60 people dead yeah for sure and i think it the another thing that's so disturbing about this story in particular is the amount of of young girls that were involved right you know ages 5 to 12 right it's just disgusting it's seriously disgusting
0: it is and like i think that's the clear indicator with this first Veliska axe murder because um when you look at it like there's the one male in the house, the father, the rest are females. Yep. So like literally there's that clear motive there, which we already touched on in that last thing um, with the Mueller book. So I don't know. It's sickening, but how is it not <laughs> that exactly. person, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: So um, and it's obviously unsolved still to this day. So people can kind of, those are the top people who have been tried and examined about this case and stuff. Um, But anyways, in today's uh, pop culture, it's now an extremely haunted house, obviously, (laughs) is what they say. So there have been many reports of this small farmhouse being extremely haunted. There have been film crews for many paranormal investigations that have described the house as having a good versus evil vibe. So, and that's something also we can talk about, the good versus evil vibe. Because a lot of people from different paranormal shows and investigations have described this good versus evil vibe. Yeah. So, uh, some of the paranormal investigators, I think Zach Baggins was one of them that did his show there. Yeah. uh, He said, he mentioned the good versus evil kind of pulling at each other the whole time. Um, The evil obviously coming from this, this murderer and the good obviously being the family. Yeah. One of the paranormal shows that I was watching, they did a seance and they talked to the young girls in the house. And it was like a good spirit, like a good ghost vibe. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's pretty, pretty notable. Um, You can also spend the night in this house.
0: Fuck that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Or you can tour it in the daytime if you're Andrew. Nah, yeah. I don't even know if I would do it in the daytime. No? If we're being honest, yeah. Um. On their website, you can actually book it. I think it's like $480 for the night. Fuck that, dude. And you can bring up to six people.
0: Nah, give me a bougie ass hotel room for the right? same price, yeah. dude. I don't want to yeah. stay in this shit. This hole. place
1: has an outhouse in the back. There's no restroom in the house.
0: Why? Dude. So in no. the middle of the night, you're staying no. there with your
1: friends and you're like, oh, I gotta <laughs> go to the bathroom. Okay, go walk 200 yards out. Dude, okay. The hole.
0: Legit, if we like stayed there or if I went there with friends, like bring up my, you know, six friends with me and go there. If they have to use the restroom, dude, there's no way I'm not going to try to scare the shit out of them. Yeah. There's no way, dude. (laughs) If I'm paying 480 bucks, I'm definitely not going with you then. (laughs) Jeez. Dude, for the price, you got to have a good time, dude. You got to make something happen.
1: I pulled up the website, and this is actually written from the website, the booking uh, from the TripAdvisor website. It says Overnights at the Velisca house typically begin at 4 p.m. After a walkthrough tour of the house and grounds, we will turn over the key and head on home. You'll be asked to leave the key in a predetermined place when you leave no later than 9.30 a.m. Overnight tours are by reservation only, and we suggest that you limit your group to 10 or less. Any more than that, and the small house gets even smaller. Bring your sleeping bags and pillows so you will be comfortable sleeping in the house. The barn is located a few feet from the house and has restrooms, water, and electricity. Dude, the house doesn't even have electricity. Yeah, no.
0: I don't know why people would want to stay there. That's ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Uh, if it's spring or early fall, a blanket and heavy coat are a good idea. The house has a little heat. However, depending on the weather, it's always a good idea to come prepared. Photographs, videotapes, and audio recordings are encouraged. However, we would appreciate it if, you share, if you'd share anything you may capture on film or on tape.
0: Ooh, spooky. So I wonder
1: if people have actually, like, there's been ghost shows, obviously, that have done stuff there. But I wonder if there's any, like, actual crazy stuff come on camera.
0: Dude, I bet there is, but it's probably from people that are like tripping. Probably, you know,
1: going in there and smoking roofies. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, all right, what do you think? I want to know from you, Andrew, who you think did it. And you already answered my question would you stay there?
0: Yeah, so definitely not to stay in there. And looking through the victims, I'm definitely gonna have to pick Paul Mueller just because of all the connections to what happened versus also the other murders that took place with the same exact scenarios or close to at least so for me I'm just gonna say Paul Mueller We're gonna leave it at that I could easily see some of the others being plausible but that's the one that stands out to me what about you
1: okay um I'm different I'm gonna say William Mansfield really I think so okay I think that the fact that he had already been convicted of murdering family plus more people um makes him a more likely candidate to kill more people okay because, you know, once a murderer, always a murderer. That's true. That's and he true. was already technically a serial killer at this point. Um, I don't... And also the thing about how he hung aprons and skirts to cover the windows. I don't know. I think he also... When that happened in Colorado. I think that he also was guilty of doing something like that too earlier. Okay. So I'm going to say him. And would I stay in the house? Um, I would have to be paid to stay at the house. rather than pay, especially that much. Jesus. Um, I would have to be paid to stay in the house, probably. And I wouldn't do it alone. I would have to have at least two other people with me. Okay. So. No, that's fair. That's what I'm going to say. That's a good way to put it. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're good. You close it up. Do you have any other final thoughts? No, I'm good.
1: (laughs) Okay. So that's it for the Velisca Axe Murderers. Um, This has been Season 3, Episode 7 of the Dark Things Podcast we like to thank you for listening and contributing to our podcast. If you have any thoughts or comments or concerns, or if you want to just give us some ideas for another episode, you can message us on Instagram at the dark things podcast. Uh, Also follow our Twitter. We do appreciate your support. This wouldn't be possible without you. Once again, I'm Hunter Halverson with Andrew Dutson. Have a great day.